It was on October the 4th, 1957. Americans woke up to hear some very scary news. The Soviet Union had launched a satellite. It was now circling the earth every 90 minutes. It was about the size of a basketball, about two feet across. And it was emitting a signal, a signal that ham operators around the world could all hear. It scared us to death. They called this thing Sputnik, which means fellow traveler or traveling companion, which was a very appropriate name because now fear was our traveling companion for every American. What were the Russians doing? What was going to happen to us? It scared us to death. And it also reminded us that we now were going to have to go into outer space. We were going to have to go where we had never gone before. We were going to have to explore. Because if the Russians were there, we had to go too. And so we all began to work. And it was finally in April 1961 that the Soviets blasted off Yuri Gagarin who orbited the earth. Again, being so far ahead of us. Orbiting the earth and landing safely. It was on May the 5th, 1961 that we responded and we shot Alan Shepard up in a suborbital flight. We did not orbit the earth, but at least we managed to get somebody into space. His whole flight lasted 15 minutes and 23 seconds. But we had been there. They began to answer some questions. You see, we were so afraid. What would happen if you went into outer space? People said, if you're in weightlessness, your eyeballs are going to pop out. If you get into weightlessness, your heart's going to stop. Scared as to death going into outer space. All kinds of dire things were predicted. But we'd finally made it a suborbital flight. Three weeks after Alan Shepard went into outer space, President Kennedy called a joint meeting of Congress and he laid out and said, I would like to propose a new goal for us. I believe that before the end of, the, the end of this decade, we need to send a man all the way to the moon and walk on the moon and bring them back safely. That was the goal. What an incredible, outrageous goal to go to the moon before the end of the decade. He said it's going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars, but we need to do this. The Russians are already going there. And he made a statement in that very first speech that I thought was great. He said, though we cannot guarantee that we shall one day be first on the moon, we can guarantee that our failure to do this will make us last. Ah, we got to try. What they didn't know was in the back room, you had uh, Jim Webb, Bob Gilruth, and other officials from NASA, and they were sitting around listening to this speech, we're going to the moon. And Jim Webb turned to Bob Gilruth and said, can we do this? Can we actually go to the moon? And Bob Gilruth was heard to say, well, it's going to take thousands upon thousands of people. We're going to have to build new facilities. It's going to take technology and materials that haven't been invented yet. Yes, we can do it. It would not be easy. Kennedy would have to continue to try to rally the United States to say, this is going to cost money and it's going to take the focus of a nation in order for us to go do this. And so it was in September of 1961, just a few months later, he was down in Houston, Texas at Rice University. And there he gave one of his most famous speeches. 
as he tried to rally the nation to get behind the space program. And I want to read you just a couple of excerpts of what he had to say. If this capsule of history teaches us anything, it is that man, in his quest for knowledge and progress, is determined and cannot be deterred. The exploration of space will go ahead, whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the greatest adventures of all time. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserve the best of all mankind. But why, some will say, the moon? But why choose this as our goal? And they may as well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas in football? <laughs> we choose to go to the moon. We chose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one we are willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. And so the country did rally. That was 53 years ago. 45 years ago, Neil Armstrong would land and walk on the moon before the end of that decade. Now i got to tell you, it doesn't matter whether you were alive in the 60s to hear all that or not. I hope you'll go outside at night and look up at the moon. Go out and just look at the moon. It's a quarter of a million miles away. And then think. We actually put people in a craft and flew 25,000 miles an hour to the moon, walked on the moon and came back. You talk about an incredible feat. It all but seems impossible. But we did it because we focus the best of our time and our energies and abilities to do the hard thing. And we did it. And i got to tell you, I, I love looking at the moon. I look at the moon all the time, whether I'm here in Oklahoma City, or I'm up in the mountains, or I'm out sailing. I love to look at the moon. Because when I do, it inspires me. It inspires me to think, I need to be willing to do the hard thing. I need to be willing to focus my energies in the very best of who I am to tackle the issues in front of my life. It inspires me. Do the hard thing. Don't shrink. Move into life. And that's why this morning I want to start a new sermon series for the, the next four weeks entitled, Do the Hard Thing. Reach for greatness. I believe that you and I are called to make a difference and to live well and that can only be if we do the hard thing. What we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to follow the people of Israel. We're going to start with them in Egypt in slavery, and we're going to end where they are the people of God in the promised land. And we're going to look and see what God asked out of the people of Israel all along the way. What are the hard things that God asked them to do in order to find new life, a new land, a place to live, to find what it means to be God's people living in the promised land. And this morning, what we do is begin by looking at this very beginning, how the people of Israel been in slavery. And our scripture tells us they now were set free. 
to be slaves and now to be free. To be living with the known and now be living with the unknown. That's hard. It's scary. Sometimes it is easier to stay a slave with what is known and comfortable. It is easier to stay that way than it is to move into an unknown future. But that's where God leads us. You know, J.K. Rowling is such an amazing author. She, I love her story of how she was a single mom and so poor when she dreamed up the story of Harry Potter. And she wrote one book after another with incredible success. And you remember Harry Potter was a young boy who's born. He grows up and discovers he's a wizard. And he has to use his magic to change his world. But let me read you what J.K. Rowling had to say. We do not need magic to change the world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. And we have the power to act on our imagination and to change our lives if we do the hard thing. We have the power to imagine something better. When was the last time you let God inspire you to imagine something better and you were willing to do the hard thing to follow God on a new journey? That's what I want us to be thinking about today and for these next four weeks. And what I want to do today is I want us to see the questions that I believe God was asking out of the people of Israel. First of all, I believe God was asking the people of Israel, how are you going to treat each other? How are you going to learn to get along, to work together, live together, play together? How are you going to treat each other? You see, the people of Israel had been in slavery for 430 years. And after 430 years, then they moved into the wilderness and suddenly they're free. Now, if you're a slave, you're told where to live, when to get up, when to go to bed. There's very little you can do. But now you're free. And remember, in Egypt, the people were called Hebrews. Now, Hebrew, it literally comes from the word apru, which means foreigner, stranger, the one from across the river. That's Apru, the Hebrew. And so you had the people who were the direct bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you had more than just the bloodline descendants. You had all these people who were the Apru, the Hebrews. And it's together as that mass that we move into the wilderness and into freedom. How are you going to treat each other? How are you going to get along? And so it was that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments as a good start. And then he kept giving them commandments. For 40 years, God would have to work with the people. How are you going to learn to get along? I've told you before how I was very, very fortunate and I was being raised by a wonderful mom and dad. I grew up kind of in a sheltered life. I grew up in a neighborhood. It was all white. We were mainly Protestant. Um, we were middle class. It was just a nice little neighborhood, kind of like leave it to beaver. My mom and dad in the end were people of real faith. My mom was the daughter of a Methodist minister in Kentucky. And, and, you know, they raised us very much in the church and with the basic values. My mom didn't have some fancy systematic theology. Her basic theology was you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
and treat other people the way you want to be treated. It's the golden rule. And so mom drilled that in us over and over again. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? You treat others the way you want to be treated? That was basically her theology. We got that preached to us all the time. And I saw her live that in her life over and over. Mom and dad both. But I maybe saw it one of the best, actually a little later in their life. It was probably about 40 years ago. Mom was working at Control Data. That was a competitor with IBM. And she enjoyed working outside the home, was very successful. But while she was working there, she met a man named Jim. And they became good friends. It turned out that Jim loved to fish. And my dad loved to fish. And so they all started getting together, and Jim and my dad would go fishing down in Rockport and Galveston, and, and they'd have a good time. Well, Jim was living with a man named David. David did not love to fish. He liked to shop. My mom liked to shop. And so these four became very good friends, and they would start now traveling on these fishing trips so that Jim and my dad could go fish, and mom and David would go shop. And it seemed like it all worked out very well. They even took a journey all the way to Alaska to fish for salmon, which was on my dad's bucket list. I want to go. They had such a good time. Well, this kind of went on for many years. I mean, my mom and dad had lots of friends. Mom was very outgoing. So many from their Sunday school class, the Adelphi class. But they really became good friends um, with Jim and with David. But after about 20 years, 20 years, my brother was saying to my mom one day, you know, I, I really admire you the way you are so loving and non-judgmental and that some of your best friends are gay. And my mom said, they're not gay. Well, yeah, mom. I mean, Jim and David, they're gay. They're not gay. I think they are. Mom went to the phone, picked it up. Hello, Jim, are you gay? 20 years, and Jim said, well, Gene, yes. <laughs> My mom is so innocent, so loving. That would not have crossed her mind. And Jim said, well, Gene, haven't you noticed how once a month on a weekend I fly to go away? I've been going up to Washington, D.C. I have HIV. I'm going up there for experimental drugs. I've been going for years. And my mom and dad understood if you had HIV, it means it could lead into AIDS. And if it leads into AIDS, you're going to be very sick and you're going to die. And so my mom and dad started talking about this. And finally, my mom called Jim and said, Earl and I have been talking about this and we just want you to know, if you develop AIDS, we want you to come live with us. We will always have a room for you. We will take care of you. We want you to know you always have a home. But you know, life has a funny twist to it. Jim didn't get sick. He's still alive and doing well. My father had a stroke. My father had a stroke and he began to decline. And they were so supported by their Sunday school class and all their wonderful friends but nobody came more than Jim and David to help mom and to help dad for a number of years. And then my dad died, and mom was in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's. And so we had to put mom in a home, 
And again, lots of friends came to see mom and to take her out to eat, take her to church. But nobody came more than Jim and David. Mom couldn't keep her little dog that she loved so much anymore, so they took the dog. And the mom was one of the unfortunate ones. Her disease went on for so long. She no longer was able to recognize anyone. She was no longer able to speak. And when that happened, all the visits really began to decrease. But Jim and David came every week. Even when mom could not speak nor know anyone, they came to sit. And they brought her flowers to the day that she died. And you know, I can work on all kinds of intellectual, theological statements. But when you live from the heart, it just makes things different. To say, what does it mean to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself? To treat others the way you want to be treated? Sometimes that's hard. But when you do that, it changes your world. You know, this last week there were so many inflammatory statements in the newspaper and different places about those claiming to be Muslim Americans. And we've had such a real backlash about that. We've all been reading and hearing about it. And I just got to tell you, it made me really sad. It made me really sad. Because I, I sometimes think we forget. We forget that down through the centuries, there have always been people, religious fanaticals, who take something from their scripture and twist it to give them permission to hate. Several years back, I had a chance to have dinner with Charles Kimball. He's a professor of religion down at OU, an incredibly wonderful man. And, and we were talking that night, and you know, it turned out, you'll remember back in 1979, how we had to take over the embassy in Iran. There. And it really was kind of a wake-up call to the Middle East. We had our people held prisoner for 444 days. Well, it just so happened that Dr. Kimball had been working and studying on the Middle East and Islam, even though he's a good Baptist, this was his real focus. And he was over in the Middle East, and in the end our government turned to him along with others to be the envoy to go to the embassy to see how our people were faring. And so he went and he was telling me, he said, we met these captors with all their guns and they said, we're doing this in the name of Allah. We're doing this uh, because this is what the Quran tells us to do. And Dr. Kimball's response was, that's bull. That's just bull. I said, Charles, I'm not sure that was the best response to have to those captors. He said, I know, I was kind of young and brash. I just couldn't help it. And I, I said, that's bull. I said, you may be politically motivated. You may be political warriors. But don't say it's because of your faith. That's not what the Quran says. And he began to quote the Quran to him. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what it says. They looked at him for a few moments and said, we'll get back to you in a second. And they left. <laughs> and they went away and began to talk. And then they came back and said, all right, we'll talk with you. And they realized they had somebody here who really understood. And so he visited with them. And in the end, he said, I want to stay. I want to stay with the rest of the American prisoners. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want someone like you around here who knows the truth. But he would be invited back, and he would come and talk, and he would help deliver mail. But you know, you sometimes forget there are those people who want to say they're motivated out of religion, and they've simply twisted the passages of their holy scripture. 
You and I are looking at ISIS day in and day out on the evening news and on their internet and in the papers hearing such atrocities and it scares us to death. And they are people who want to say it's out of our holy scriptures that we have the cover to go and to kill. What we sometimes forget is a thousand years ago we did the same thing. That's why I'm so passionate about the class that I'm teaching right now on Wednesday Night Alive, looking at a thousand years, understanding history and how we relate to one another. Because a thousand years ago, we went on crusades through Europe using our scriptures to give us permission to go to the Jews and the Muslims and put the sword to their throat and say, convert or die. And thousands died. And what I am sure of is if Jesus had been walking with those soldiers there in heading out in these conquests, he would have wept. He would have wept to think that someone was using the scripture to say we should go convert and kill people like this. And I am equally convinced that if Mohammed was walking in Iraq and Iran right now, he would weep to see how people are using scripture as permission to kill And I know that God weeps. That God looks down on us and he thinks, my creation, and you can't figure it out? How long? I can tell you, I've read the Quran, and there's so many verses that talk about love your neighbor, take care of the poor and the widow, and especially be good to the people of the book. Now, people of the book are Christians and Jews because we all trace ourselves back to Abraham. Be especially good to people of the book. I don't know if you work with those who might be Muslim or those who live beside you. You know, it's easy to be afraid of that which you do not understand and know. Visit with them. I can tell you the people that I have worked with and known, they love their children. They love God. They want to build a better city. They want to build a better country. It is sometimes hard when all we see is the news and the things that people say to truly get to know. I got a call not long ago from people involved with interfaith. And they called and said, would you be willing to host a movie entitled My So-Called Enemy? You see, there is the struggle going on right now over in Israel and Palestine, between Jews and Arab Muslims, we see it, all the killing, and there is so much to struggle on both sides. And it was years ago, there was a a Jewish girl, she moved to Canada, she was in Ottawa, Canada, she was a junior in high school, and she met an Arab Muslim for the first time in her life. She's 17, but all her life had been living in Israel, she knew to hate them and to be afraid of them, and now she met one for the first time in her life, and wouldn't you know it? The lady would be so nice. And they became great friends. And it rocked her world to say, I need to treat people different. So what she decided to do was she decided she was going to try to create a program where you'd bring teenagers from Israel and teenagers from Palestine and have them come live for a summer together here in America and get to know one another. And then if they went back to their countries, maybe they could help cause things to be different. It was called Building Bridges for Peace. And so what they've done is they've created this documentary with an an Emmy Award winning director to choose these six women out of 
Israel and six women from Palestine who came here to be building bridges for peace. And then they followed them for seven years when they went back home to reality. What happened when they got home? The struggles politically, economically, religiously. And so they created this documentary, My So-Called Enemy. And so they called me and they said, what happens, Bob, is we want to get the Jews and the Muslims in Oklahoma City together to talk about this to see if we can't figure out how to be a positive force for peace. And we decided we needed to meet on neutral ground, so that means the Christian church. He said, would you allow us to use the CLC to show the movie and to come together to talk? And we want Christians there too. And I said, absolutely. So that's what we're going to do on Thursday night. We're going to meet to watch the show and hear a discussion among people about what are all the problems on both sides and how do we work for a sense of peace. To say that you want to love God and love your neighbor, that you want to treat others the way you want to be treated, well, that's a hard thing. It's the hard thing. And yet when we choose to do it, it changes our world. It would take God 40 years with the people of Israel giving them the Ten Commandments and everything else to teach them how to get along, how to treat each other. They were slow learners. But don't throw stones. I'm not sure if we learn even slower. Secondly, I believe we have to ask ourselves the question, do we trust that God is going to lead us? That God is going to lead us out of slavery into a being the people that we've been created to be. You see, the promise was, you're now free, and you can go where you want, but I want to lead you in such a way that I'm asking you, I'll have a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Will you let me lead you to that new life? Not long ago, I had a chance to go over and speak to the freshmen at OCU. And I was there at the freshmen at OCU for their matriculation service, And I said, I want to bring one word to our freshmen in college. And what that is, is be open. Try new things. You never know how God is going to lead you at this period in your life. And you're going to discover something new about yourself. Let God lead you. Try new things. Be open. And after I came away from that morning, I thought, you know, that's not a message for an 18-year-old. That's a message for a 30-year-old and a 50-year-old. And a 70-year-old. Because by then, you really do feel sometimes trapped. Trapped by responsibility. Trapped financially. Trapped by health. It is easy to feel enslaved. And we forget to let God lead us to become the people we've been created to be. Do you trust that God is going to lead you? Are you willing to do the hard thing? Sometimes it's easier to stay enslaved in the way that our lives have developed rather than, I can imagine something better. I can imagine something better and I will do the hard thing. You know, it's Dostoevsky who said, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. It's not just about staying alive, it's about finding something to live for. I believe God will help you to find something to live for if you let him lead you into the unknown. But it may require you to do the hard thing. 
You know, this past summer, I read so many different books, but one of the books I read was by Richard Paul Evans. It was entitled, The Four Doors. It's a small little book, very inspirational. We kind of have a relationship with Richard Paul Evans you may not even know. His original book that he wrote was a best-selling novel uh, on the New York Times bestseller list, but the fascinating thing was it was a story called The Christmas Box, and in it is about a family who loses a child, the death of a child. And how this person goes to the cemetery and there they see an angel. In the cemetery, a statue of an angel. And it helps to give them hope. Well, when we had the bombing here in Oklahoma City and so many children were killed, it was Richard Paul Evans who sent a a copy of the angel from the cemetery, known as the Christmas Box Angel, this angel of hope to Oklahoma City. And for a while it was held by the Red Cross. And then the Red Cross has entrusted it with us and it is out in our gardens. So if you hadn't been out in the gardens, go out in the gardens, and there you'll find the Christmas box angel, the angel of hope that comes out of that story. But the story in itself is quite fascinating because when he was a young man, he wanted to be an author, but he had never published anything, and he decided to write a story for his kids for Christmas. And so he sat down to write this story, and he felt like it was a story that was given to him. He got the story, he wrote it up, got 15 copies printed for kids and for some family members. And when they all read it, they were so overwhelmed, they said, you need to publish this. But it was hard to be a self-published author in those days. There was no internet, there was no e-books. You didn't have big store chains, you mainly had mom and pop bookstores all around the country. So you had to go to these special convention of booksellers to try to get your book known. And for a self-published person, that was all but impossible. But he felt the message had been given to him by God. He loved the book and wanted to try. And he decided to do the hard thing. So he heard about a public bookseller's convention in Denver. He went to Denver. He rented his little table. And he brought his books and sat down to meet the booksellers. And a couple hours went by and he had seen one or two. So, so he went to a person who was running the show and said, Where are all the booksellers? And he said, well, they're over in Salon B. And he went over to Salon B and opened the doors, and there were hundreds of people. And all these stages set around the room, and there were these very famous authors, and they were signing their books and handing out free copies. People were lined up to get them. That's where he needed to be. But he was over in the other room. When suddenly he saw up front there was an empty seat, an empty seat on the stage, and it's like he heard a voice say, You want to be a great author? Take the seat. And he thought to himself, I can't do that. I mean, they'd throw me out of here. I mean, who am I? How embarrassing. I'm nobody. Look at who these people are. That'd be way too hard. He turned to walk back to his little room. And as he turned to walk, it's like he heard the voice again. If you don't believe in the message, who will? And so he found the courage to do the hard thing. He went back, picked up his box of books. He went charging on back in there, went up, and he sat down on the stage and put it down, looked over the guy beside him and said, sorry, I'm late. (laughs) They just looked at him and kept on signing books. But it wasn't but a moment. He looked up and there he caught a woman's eyes. She was making a beeline right across the room for him. He knew what she was going to do. She came right up to him and he immediately said to her, sorry I'm late. 
she just looked at him. She didn't say a word. She just kept looking at him. And finally she said, can I get you some water? That'd be great. And so she went away and suddenly all these people were coming by and he's signing the books and he's handing them out hundreds of books for the next several hours right and left. One month later the book gets published. Fast forward one year. One year later the Christmas box is on the New York Times bestseller list near the top. One of those true miracles of a self-publishing book making it so big. And so a year later, he had a publicist and he had a publisher and, and an advertising, all kinds of people. And they said, would you do us a favor? We need to take you on a national book tour. We want you to start by going to a bookseller's convention in Denver. He said, I'll go. And so he showed back up in Denver and he shows up that day and now they take him up on the stage and there he has his seat with his name waiting for him. And there's a big publication to talk about all the authors there that day. And it's his picture that's on the front. And he sits down to take his place and get all ready. And he looks up and here comes the woman. He recognizes her. And she comes walking up and he said, do you know who I am? Well, Mr. Evans, of course. Everybody here knows who you are. No, no, no. Do you know who I am? And she broke into a smile and said, Yes, you're the man who crashed the book signing last year. <laughs> he said, Yes, that is me. When you came, I thought you were going to throw me out. She said, I was. That's my job. So what happened? When I came and stood in front of you and I just looked into your eyes, it's like I heard a voice say, Let him stay. Let him stay. So I did. I'm so glad things have worked out. Can I get you some water? How often, if we are willing to do the hard thing, God leads us not just to stay alive, but to find something to live for. Do you trust that God will lead you all the days of your life. It is the promise. The promise that it is God who wants to lead us from slavery to new life if you and I are willing to do the hard thing. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.